and I'm very, very thankful for each and every one of you. And uh, I'm also really thankful for chocolate, <laughs> especially dark chocolate. Anyone else thankful for dark chocolate out there? You know, in fact, my wife left me this tray in here, if I can get it out without knocking everything over. She made this wonderful tray of delicious dark chocolate brownies. I don't know if you can smell it out there. Let's see if I can, if I can get it out there. But they're really, really good. Oh, and she left me this really, really special note, I think, on here. You mind if I read it to you? Okay. She left me this note. Let's see what she said. Honey, I wanted to do something nice for you, and I know how much you love chocolate. So I made you these brownies. I put so much good stuff in these things. I added fresh eggs, sugar, and of course, tons of chocolate. To be fair, though, I need to let you know that while I was cleaning out the cat litter box, I accidentally dropped a little poop in the batter. It was just a little, though. I didn't think it was that big of a deal. I'm sure they will still be delicious. Love your wife, XOXO. How thoughtful of her. How many of you want some of these brownies now? Well, why not? It's just a little poop. And by the way, that happens to be my title today for the message. If it comes up here. You guys get it to come up on the screen for me? It's just a little poop. There we go. It's just a little poop. So a little bit of poop is still poop, no matter what you mix with it. No matter how much you try to dress it up, it's still poop. And I bet you didn't think when you were coming to church today that you were going to hear the word poop, did you? I don't think anybody probably thought that. But listen, our lives are sometimes just like these brownies. We've got all kinds of good stuff in our lives, or so we think, but there's just a little bit of poop tucked in there. You know, just a little bit of sin. Many times we're in denial about the sin that's in our lives. This is especially true in what we watch, and in what we read, and in what we listen to. As Christians, we're called to be set apart. We're called to be different from the world. We're called to reflect Christ. How can we do that if we're sitting in poop? Let's pray. Father, I just ask that you would uh, give me the words to say today, Lord, and that the hearts in here would be turned to you, and that we could glorify you through everything, Lord. We love you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, a lot of times we rationalize our sin like this. Oh, it's just an R-rated movie. Never mind that there's a few F-bombs dropped in, dropped in there. No big deal. Or someone taking the Lord's name in vain. You know, because it's funny, right? Or maybe just a little nudity and, and a few inappropriate scenes to spice it up a little. It's just a little poop. Or maybe we rationalize like this. It's just a steamy romance novel. It's only fantasy. No big deal. Right? Your husband's not the romantic type, so you've got to get your romance in somewhere, right, girls? Or, hey, guys, what about those magazines? You know, Sports Illustrated Edition or Victoria's Secrets catalog? And when we see there's not much left to the imagination, why not just take it to the next level? And on and on it goes. It's just a little poop. 
Or maybe we rationalize like this. I know the song has bad lyrics, but it's got such a catchy beat. I love the way it sounds. It's okay if the lyrics demean women, glorify violence and alcohol, and seek to make purity a thing of the past, if it sounds good, right? The images we see, the words we read, and the things that we see, they all stick with us. We have to ask ourselves, what does this stir up in our thought life? Is this really feeding our hearts and our minds, or is it polluting them? Does what we watch honor God? Does what we read edify our minds? And does what we listen to glorify God? You know, I hope this message will cause all of us to take a serious inventory of the things that we allow in our lives that are not pleasing to God. Believe me, my wife and I have had to do this. There's been shows that we've been watching that we've really enjoyed, and suddenly they throw in a little bit of poop. And we're like, man, I really wanted to see what happens. I really wanted to watch that. So, you know, we get that. I understand. It can be hard. But we've got to ask ourselves, would we be ashamed if God were physically sitting right there with us in what we're watching and what we're reading and what we're listening to? The fact is, God is with us wherever we go. If you've given your life to Christ and you've truly asked him into your heart, he's living right there on the inside of you. You can't just sweep up your house before he comes over. He's already there. Whatever you do in secret is already exposed. He's sitting beside you when you're watching TV, when you're watching a movie. He's right there with you when you're reading a, uh, reading a book. Or he's right there with you in the car when you're listening to music. We have to ask ourselves, would he be pleased with what we're putting into our minds? We can't treat sin like it's no big deal. We're called to be set apart, remember? We're called to be holy. Let's see what God says about our holiness. You guys might have to help me out because this thing is not working today. Is there a power button here? Here we go. Okay. All right, so 1 Thessalonians 4. God's will is for you to be holy. You ever want to know what God's will is? There it is, for you to be holy. Anytime the Bible says God's will is, we should take notice of that. God's will is for you to be holy. God has called us to live holy lives, not impure lives. 2 Corinthians 7.1 says, Let us cleanse ourselves from everything that can defile our body or spirit, and let us work toward complete holiness, because we fear God. And 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16 says, So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then, but now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, You must be holy because I am holy. We need to understand that our holiness is important to God. So what we just read said, we need to be holy in everything we do, we're to work toward complete holiness, and we're to cleanse ourselves of everything that isn't holy. In other words, we need to get rid of all the poop, all of it that's in our lives. Why don't we see God, or why don't we see sin rather, as God sees it? We need to understand that all sin is serious to God, all of it. Why do we treat sin so casually? Listen, casual Christians become Christian casualties. 
you've got that in your handout, I encourage you to circle that. Write it in your notes. Remember this. Casual Christians become Christian casualties. Casual Christians are those who casually obey Christ. You know, when it's convenient or fun. They obey when it's good for them. That's a casual Christian. Living as a casual Christian is not only crazy, it's downright dangerous. Jesus says in Revelation 3.20 that since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That is a very, very serious warning for all of us. We need to stop making excuses for sin. We need to stop rationalizing our sin. And we need to stop treating it like it's no big deal. Most of us don't plan to, to wake up and sin, right? But poop happens. It just happens. And so I'm gonna, I've got a little crude diagram here that I'm going to walk you through how sin most often p- plays out in our lives. First, complacency sets in. We get too comfortable. We let our guard down. And when we let our guard down, that leads to a little compromise. And then one compromise leads to another. And let's face it, if we're not held accountable, in other words, if we get away with it, the little compromises will then lead to bigger compromises. And eventually these compromises will lead to big consequences. We have to realize that little compromises actually have big consequences. Satan doesn't want us thinking about the consequences. He just wants us to focus on the temporary pleasures. He is such a liar. He's such a liar. Open your Bibles if you've got them with you to 2 Samuel chapter 11. This is our main text for today. We're going to spend a lot of time here. 2 Samuel chapter 11. And uh, we're going to read the story of David and, and talk about his compromises. Um, Did you know that the Bible calls David a man after God's own heart? The Bible says that he defeated lions and he defeated bears. He was the one who defeated the large Philistine giant Goliath. He led and he fought in many, many battles against his enemies. The Bible says he was a warrior. But he was also a great example of what happens when we allow little compromises into our lives. So let's read 2 Samuel 11 beginning in verse 1. In the spring of that year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. So why did David fail here? He had been victorious in everything he did up to this point. What went wrong? The answer is complacency. Complacency is defined as a feeling of calm satisfaction with your own abilities, or a situation that prevents you from trying harder. You know, David was satisfied with what he'd achieved and what he possessed, and he remained in his comfort zone 
completely unaware of any actual danger or deficiencies. Notice in verse 1, the word says that he stayed behind in Jerusalem. Jerusalem represented his comfort zone. In Jerusalem, he could relax. He could sleep in. He could eat whatever he wanted. There was no fighting. There was no getting dirty. There was no sleeping on the ground. Just peace and safety in Jerusalem. And complacency comes when you and I think we're in a safe zone and we have no idea that we've got invisible bullets flying all around our head. The truth is, we are all at war. We're all at war. We have an enemy who doesn't sleep. He doesn't play by the rules. There are no safe zones to him. There are no timeouts or ceasefires. His mission, steal, kill, and destroy. Period. That's his mission. And Satan will whisper in our ear, hey, you don't have to fight today. Just take it easy. Let someone else do it. You deserve to take it easy. Stay where you are. Be comfortable. Enjoy yourself. The Bible warns us over and over with words like beware, watch out, be on guard, stay alert. All through the Bible, there's those kinds of warnings. But here's the problem. When we get stuck in complacency mode, we ignore all those warnings. And we reach for comfort. And so we then compromise just like David did. David stayed behind in Jerusalem, or David staying behind in Jerusalem, rather, that was a first in a series of compromises. And those, those compromises they had ultimately led to disastrous consequences. <clears throat> Notice also in verse 1 that it says, it was a time when kings normally go out to war. In those days, it was the responsibility of the king to lead his men in battle, to fight. It was his duty. And what happened is, is David sent Joab out with his whole army to fight the Ammonites, and he chose to stay behind in Jerusalem. Now, he chose to stay behind. No one made him stay behind. No one twisted his arm. No one said, hey, David, you really need to stay back. No, he chose to stay back. Now, he's the king. If he wants to stay behind, that's his choice to make. Perhaps the compromise of staying behind in Jerusalem was a little bit easier for him because he had done it before and he had gotten away with it and nothing bad had happened. If you look in the previous chapter, if you look in chapter 10, you'll notice that what he did is he sent Joab out to fight on two different fronts against the enemy and David stayed back. Nothing happened. Nothing bad happened then. So perhaps it was a little bit easier for David this time around to not leave Jerusalem. When we compromise a little, when we say, oh, it's just a little poop and nothing bad happens, we somehow think it's okay to do it again. David's second compromise was being lazy. In verse 2, we see that he gets out of bed in the late afternoon after a midday rest. Well, that's nice. While his army is out fighting and doing battle, David's sleeping cozy in his bed. He should have been out there. It's in the middle of the day. The afternoon was not a time to sleep. It was a time to work. It was a time to fight. He could have at least been on his face praying for his troops. He could have been at least fighting that way. He's the king. Does he have the authority to just take a nap whenever he wants to? You bet. You bet he does. Once again, it was his choice to make. And listen, sin 
is always a choice. However, him making this choice to nap off all afternoon, this shows one thing. This shows that he was not busy. He was lazy and he was idle. Guess what happens when we're idle? When we're idle, when we're, on, when we're coasting and we're on cruise control, guess what happens? We open the door for compromise. And this is exactly what happened to David. So David gets out of bed and he takes a stroll on the roof of the palace. And as he's out there on the palace, he's wandering around. He's probably letting his mind wander too. He has time on his hands. It's kind of like we do today when we're surfing the internet or we're scrolling around on Facebook. We've got time on our hands. So we just surf for something interesting, something exciting, something to catch our attention. So what's wrong with David walking around on top of the roof of the palace? Nothing seems wrong about that. He's the king, right? Except that he's at the wrong place at the wrong time. And Satan loves this. He convinces us to compromise little by little while he's setting the trap. And many times we walk right into his trap and we have no idea. We're completely unaware. So here's David. David's in his comfort zone. He's sitting in Jerusalem. He should be fighting with his men. He's walking around on top of the palace and he notices a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He's now entered a very, very dangerous place. The trap is set, and it's about to close in on him. And he has a choice. He can turn away, or, and, or he could turn away and put his mind on something else, or he could keep watching her. He's been sleeping most of the day. He's probably feeling a little bit groggy. He's been running around on the roof, just casually looking around, and bam, suddenly something's got his attention. Something has his attention now. And we know from the text that this was not a glimpse. He gazed long enough for her to recognize that she had unusual beauty. Another translation says that she was very beautiful to behold. And she was taking a bath, no less. And because he didn't look away, he reaches compromise number three. He's alone. He's the king. He has no accountability. He's now past hearing the warning signs that should be going off in his head. And that's what happens. Every little compromise that you and I make desensitizes sin more and more, and before long, we forget that what we've done or in the process of doing is even sin at all. Hey, I'm just looking. This is what many of us say today. I'm only looking. I'm only looking at the menu. I'm not intending to place an order or anything. That's what many of us say today. What's wrong with just looking, some of us might ask. Everything is wrong with that line of thinking. Jesus said if you even look upon a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. And so here's the deal. Jesus raises the bar when it comes to sin. He raises the bar because now it's more than just the action itself. It's now a matter of the heart. Our culture, unfortunately, embraces the lust of the flesh. The world even celebrates it. It's absolutely everywhere. Magazines, TV, books, movies, billboards, commercials, the internet, it's everywhere. We are bombarded from nearly every angle, and we have a choice. Be like the world and say, ah, it's only a little poop. Or say, no, I'm not going to allow any poop in my life. 
It's always a choice. Unfortunately, in David's case, he made the wrong choice. So we're now up to compromise number four. He stared long enough at her that the trap Satan set is now beginning to close around him. He still has time to turn back. There's still a way out of this. However, in verse 3, we see that now he sends someone to find out who she is. Now he's really playing with fire. He's taking another step deeper into sin. And sin is contagious. How many of you know that? It's contagious. One sin leads to another, and it's like a wildfire. It just keeps spreading. So now he's told who she is, and we learn that she's married. David is now quickly approaching the point of no return. Learning that she's married doesn't change anything for David, unfortunately. And so in verse 4, he sends messengers to get her. And so now we're up to compromise number five. He had distance between himself and Bathsheba. When he was up on the palace, he had all that distance between him and Bathsheba. But now when he sends someone to get her, he's closed that distance between himself and the sin. And that's what happens. We get too close. Sin is like a tractor beam. How many of you are Star Wars fans? Oh, only a few of you. Wow. Okay. So, sin is kind of like a tractor beam. Once you get too close, it just starts sucking you in. It pulls you in. We've got to be really careful about that. So, now David comes face to face with Bathsheba. And as he comes face to face with Bathsheba, now we're up to compromise number six. This is where he crosses the threshold between thought and action. And in verse four, you can see that he sleeps with her. You see how this thing snowballed? It's like two people who go on a date and can't believe they went all the way. One thing really does lead to another. Sin is progressive. And once it gets going, it snowballs. And eventually we find ourselves in a place we never would have thought possible. And what is so scary about that is that the transitions are often very gradual and they're undetected by the deceived heart. David got deeper and deeper into his sin and he now has to deal with the consequences. So Bathsheba, she sends word that she's now pregnant. So David scrambles to cover up his sin. And the Bible warns us over and over that our sin will find us out. No matter how hard we try to cover it up, our sins are always visible to God. Let us learn a lesson from David. Covering up our sins only makes them worse. He had just broken one of God's Ten Commandments, do not commit adultery. And now the penalty for that sin in David's time was that uh, they would put to death both the adulterer and the adulteress. They'd kill them both. That That was the penalty for it back then. So the consequences of this sin are now beginning to sink in with, for, to David. And he's thinking, oh no, there's going to be a scandal. Everyone's going to know. Everyone's going to find out what's going on. I'm going to lose my kingdom. I may even lose my life. So what does David do? He tries to cover it all up. Here's the deal. Proverbs 28, 13 says, you cannot conceal your sin. Those who do will not prosper. Take that to the bank. You will not prosper when you try to cover up your sin. So that's what David does. He comes up with this plan to make the pregnancy look like it wasn't his fault. He wanted to make it look like Bathsheba actually got pregnant from her husband Uriah. So what does he do? He calls Uriah home from the battle. Uriah's out fighting on the front lines. 
And Uriah also happened to be one of David's mighty men. So David knew Uriah. They had fought together. So he, brought, he brings Uriah home from the war, and he hopes by bringing him home that Uriah would decide to go home and sleep with Bathsheba. But unfortunately, when that doesn't work, what does David do? He takes it to the next level. So he grabs hold of Uriah, he takes him out, tries to get him drunk, hoping that by getting him drunk, that then he would go home and sleep with Bathsheba. Well, that didn't work either. Now he's getting desperate. So he arranges to have Uriah killed in battle. He tells Joab to put Uriah on the front lines and pull back so that then Uriah would be killed. Do you see how far David's fallen now? It started with the seemingly innocent choice of just staying behind in Jerusalem in his comfort zone instead of going out and fighting like kings normally do. And one thing led to another. And now he's about to add the title murderer right next to the title adulterer that he already has. How does this happen? How does a man after God's own heart commit adultery and commit murder? One compromise at a time. That's how it happens. Even just a little poop can ruin everything. Listen, it can happen to any one of us. It can happen to me. It can happen to you. The real danger is when we think that we're immune to falling into sin and when we treat it like it's no big deal. The Bible warns us in 1 Corinthians 10, 12 that if you think you're standing strong, be careful not to fall. In other words, don't think that you're above falling prey to sin. We are all vulnerable. And that's why it's so important that we don't let our guard down. We cannot become spiritually dull like David did. We have to stay sharp. When we get spiritually dull, that can lead to disastrous results. So we've now seen how David's compromises led to adultery and then to murder. What we see next are the consequences. And listen, there are always consequences to sin. Every compromise has a consequence. The more compromises, the greater the consequences. And these consequences actually have an effect on more than just us. More often than not, when we sin, we're sinning for selfish reasons, to please ourselves. But the consequences of those sins have all kinds of effects on everyone around us. We don't think about that at the time. In David's case, an innocent man is murdered. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 11, this is David's punishment. This is what the Lord says. Because of what you've done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes, and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it secretly, but I will make this happen to you and openly in the sight of all Israel. Harsh, you might think. Did he deserve it? You bet. That's what happens when you sin. There are consequences. But what I want you to see next is really important. Listen to how David responds to this. He confesses his sin in 2 Samuel 12, 13, and this is what he says. I have sinned against the Lord. That was his response. In other words, he owned it. He owned it. And you can read all about him owning his sin in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 explains it all. The point is, He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't point the finger at anyone else. He owns his sin. And when we fail, we've got to own it. And here's the beautiful thing. When we own it, 
Listen to this. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful and just. God is faithful. He will clean us up. He will forgive us. However, even after we confess, and even after we turn away from our mess and we turn to him, one thing that we need to remember is that there are still consequences to our sin. David now learns that because he has shown utter contempt to the Lord, that child that him and Bathsheba are going to have as a result of the adultery is now going to die. The child will die. And listen, there is no magical wand that we can wave over our mess and make it go away. The Bible says we will reap what we sow. In other words, there will be consequences for our foolish choices. So how do we keep from falling into sin? You might be wondering that. I'm going to give you five F words to help you keep from falling into sin. And don't worry, my F words are good, okay? Are you ready? Number one, how to, how to keep from falling into sin. Number one is fight, okay? We have to fight. Whether we realize it or not, we're at war every single day. We can't just sit back and pos- passively watch life go by. We can't do that. As I said in the beginning of this message, casual Christians become Christian casualties. We have to be active. 1 Timothy 6.12 says that we have to fight the good fight of faith. And one thing to remember when we're fighting is we can't fight in our own strength. Okay? We have to fight in his strength. That's the way to do it. Ephesians 6, 10-17 says, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you'll be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you'll be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then, after the battle, you will still be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth, and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you'll be fully prepared. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so you'll be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil, for we're not fighting against flesh and blood, but against enemies. I can't see the rest of that there. On the slide. That's about reached my limit there for what I can see from the pulpit. (laughs) Sorry about that. So we'll read it from my Bible. Y'all hanging with me? You put on your armor. Okay. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you'll be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. I love this. I wish we could camp out right here. There's so much to learn just from this text right here. But for the sake of time, I'm going to keep going. What I'd like to say is, first, is that don't ignore your armor. Put your armor on daily. Remember, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You can overcome and you can win. Don't let the enemy say you can't do it. Don't listen to that lie. If you're a child of God, you can fight and win. 
Another thing we need to realize when we fight is that we shouldn't fight alone. We need each other. We need each other. A good warrior knows that there's strength in numbers. We need to fight with and for each other. A good warrior also knows when to stand his ground and fight, and a good warrior also knows when to run. And that's pretty clear in this text here. 1 Corinthians 6, 18-20 says, Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. Sexual sin, unfortunately, is completely out of control in society today. And sadly, there are many Christians who have fallen prey to this very sin. This is one area that we should not stand our ground and fight. We need to run. Number two, and how to keep from falling into sin, is find. It's find. We've got to find the way out. I think this scripture says it best. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than what you can stand. When you're tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. There is always a way out. Always. We have to find it. The problem is that many of us don't even look for that way out. Like David, we are so captivated or entrenched in our sin that we're no longer paying attention to the warning signs. But God is faithful. He will never allow us to be tempted beyond what we can stand. The key to finding the way of of escape is looking to him. We need to take our eyes off our sin and redirect our mind and our heart back to him. Look to Jesus and you'll find the way out. Which leads us to number three. And how to keep from falling into sin is to focus Number three is to focus. We've got to focus. The world is so full of distractions, right? Full of things that compete for our attention. The absolute best way for us to stay grounded and to stay focused is to stay in God's word. Joshua 1.8 says, Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you'll be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. Sorry on the formatting. I don't know what's going on. I'm looking up there, and some words are there, some are not. Some are white, some are not. But (laughs) I'm glad I know that one. Listen, don't be put off by the word meditate. Meditate is simply focused thinking, okay? So we should be focused, and we should be thinking day and night on the Word of God. Do everything that's written there. You want to be prosperous and successful? Obey the Word of God. That's what it says. Obey the Word of God. Stay away from sin. Don't even entertain it. And listen, the battle against sin is won or lost right here. It's won or lost right in our mind. So what do we do about that? Philippians 4, 8 says, we're to fix our thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. When we're faced with the temptation to sin, we've got to ask ourselves, is this true? Is this honorable? Is it right? Is it pure, lovely, and admirable? Is it excellent and worthy of praise? To stay focused, we've talked about how to stay in the Word, how to fix our minds. The last area here in stay focused is 
we have to focus on where we're going. We've got to focus on where we're going. You know, and if you think about horses, horses have these blinders that they put on them, or we, we put blinders on horses. And the reasons we do that is because horses have their eyes on the sides of their head, and they have very, very good peripheral vision. They can see almost all the way behind them. But because they have such excellent vision, they also get very easily distracted. If you've ever seen a horse race, you notice they put something like this on their heads when they're racing, and the reason is, is so that they can, keep them, they can keep the horses focused on the track, on what lies ahead of them, and also so they can focus on winning and reaching the goal. And so that's what's key here. They have these blinders that stay on to help them uh, stay focused. Proverbs 4, 25 through 27 talks about this. Look straight ahead. Fix your eyes on what lies before you. Mark out a straight path for your feet and stay on that safe path. Don't get sidetracked. Keep your feet from following evil. Just like the horses, you and I get distracted easily by what's going on around us, by the people that are around us, by things and situations. We easily get distracted. If we're not careful, then we can let things that really don't matter get our attention and take us, our focus off of running the race we're supposed to be running. And Satan's goal, that's his whole thing that he wants to do with us, is he wants to divert our attention away from the purpose and destiny that God has for us. When we put on our spiritual blinders, when we put on those spiritual blinders, we force ourselves to keep our eyes focused on what we're supposed to be looking at, the path ahead. And we can run that race with the ultimate goal of winning. So we need to stay focused. And number four, probably my favorite out of the five, keep from falling into sin, is to flush. We need to flush. We have to flush all the junk that's in our lives. We need to get rid of it. But before we can flush the stuff, we need to recognize what it is in our life that we actually need to get rid of. You know, as I was thinking about this, and uh, I was thinking about what would help us to identify the poop that we have in our life. I was reminded of a book that I bought for my son when he was about three or four years old. It's a great book. And um, so I bought this book for him, and uh, it was his favorite book at the time. Your kids may have it, you may even know it, but here it is. It's called Who Pooped in the Park? It's a great book. If you don't have it, I encourage you to get it. How many of you have read this before? Oh, some of you know this. Okay, cool. Who Pooped in the Park? It teaches how to recognize an animal just by its poop. And uh, this, bo- this book has taught my son that coyote's poop has hair and bones in it because they can't digest it. He can recognize bear poop, elk poop. He can recognize deer poop and all kinds of animals poop just from reading this book. And uh, we've been out in the woods and he's yelled at me, Hey, Daddy, Daddy, look at this. This is elk poop over here. My son is like a poop detector, man. He's like... <laughs> Beep, 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 beep. Here it is. It's right here. Look at this. He's like a poop detector. So it made me think about how can we have an internal poop detector so that we can recognize the junk that's in our lives that shouldn't be there. James 1.21 says <clears throat> that we're to get rid of all the filth and evil in our lives and humbly accept the word of God that is planted in our hearts. For it has the power to save our souls. Hebrews 20, uh, 12, 1 says, Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. It's hard to run when we're weighted down with all the junk that's in our lives. We've got to get rid of that stuff. 
And the last one here, 1 Thessalonians 5.22 says to abstain from every form of evil. And evil can come in many different forms. Here's basically what all those scriptures are saying. We need to have a spiritual enema. That's what it means. That's what all those verses are saying. Did I just shock you with the word enema? Do I need to explain what that word means or we, we get it? Okay. We need to have a spiritual enema. We need to get rid of all the stuff that's in our lives that doesn't bring glory to God, that doesn't honor Him, that keeps us from being holy. We need to flush it. That's number four. The last one is how to keep from falling into sin. Number five, follow. We need to follow. We've got to follow Jesus. Following Jesus doesn't mean we wallow around in the filth of the world. Remember, we're supposed to be set apart. James 1.22 says, don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. We've got to do what the word says. We can't just hear it. We need to do it. Following requires action. It requires movement, forward movement, not backward movement. We need to be moving forward. When we accept Jesus into our heart, it's not a free pass for us to live however we want. We can't just think and act like, okay, I've got my eternal ticket to heaven punched. I can just coast from here on out. That is not the way we're to think. No, we don't think like that at all. Listen to the words of Jesus. He says, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily, and follow me. We've got to give up our own way. In other words, we need to deny ourselves. We have to take up our cross daily. That means die to ourselves, not once, not when we feel like it, but daily. And then follow him. This is a choice. It's a choice that you and I have to make every day. Now, you also have a choice when you leave today. You have a choice when you leave today. We've printed out these handy little sheets for you to take home that are reminders on how to recognize and avoid sin. You can pick one up on your way out. The ushers will have one at the door for you when you leave. But it's your choice. You don't have to take them home if you don't want to. It's a choice. So let's recap. What were the five F words again? Number one was to fight. We've got to stand and fight. Number two, we need to find the way out. Number three, we need to focus on Jesus. We need to do what the Word says. Number four was to flush. We need to get rid of all the junk that's in our lives, all that poop. And number five, we need to follow him, okay? The bad news of sin is that it ultimately leads where? It leads to death, right? But here's the good news. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins so that we can have eternal life. Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. That's the good news. Some of you may be sitting there thinking, I'm too dirty. If you only knew all that I've done. God wouldn't want me. But listen, there is nothing too dirty that God can't make worthy. And as we play this next song, let's ask God what's in our lives that's not pleasing to him. What is it that we need to get rid of? And let's ask him to wash us and make us clean. Beautiful. 
Washed in the blood. 